Just a quick heads up, this week's episode of Battle of the Atom contains some strong language. Hey everyone, and welcome to another exciting episode of Battle of the Atom. This is, of course, the weekly X-Men podcast where Isaac Jenkins and my co-host Adam Reck go through three X-Men stories and rank them on our big old master list from best to worst of every X-Men story ever. Adam, how are you doing today? Oh my goodness, Zach. I am so excited. Um... This is a very special episode. I feel uh, very giggly and 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 fanboyy because of our guest today. So, do you want to introduce who's uh, hanging out with us for this episode? If I have to, I mean, like, <laughs> fine. Uh, no, uh, this this week we aren't going through three X Men stories and ranking them uh, because we have something that I think is more interesting. We have the one, the only Christina strain here to talk about generation X and some other stuff. Christina, how you doing? I'm doing great. And I'm super excited to be here. Thank you for yeah. being here. Thank you guys for having me. Well, it's going to be exciting. Like, here's the thing. Let's, let's put these cards out on the table right to begin. Mm-hmm. When I began the Xavier files media empire, <laughs> i i had a, i had a few interviews beforehand but christina was one of the first creators that i like got on the horn with and we're chatting about i remember when generation x got announced i was like oh shoot i gotta find this person's twitter account and shoot them a message saying hey look you want to talk about this book later hit me up <laughs> and it worked yeah right so at that point i just kind of said, okay, I'm putting all of my chips on Generation X, and this better be a damn good book, or else I'm going to be very disappointed. And (laughs) I was not. I am so glad that book didn't suck. Because some people were. I don't understand how that's possible. How is that possible? I mean, we should get this out of the way. We should get this out of the way to begin with. Uh, Generation X is by far my favorite x book of like i'm trying to think of how many of the last years i mean it was absolutely outstanding you're getting the character notes right um and we'll get into some of the specifics probably as we talk about what uh i love about this book but congratulations i mean it was outstanding thank you so very much yeah no i uh i joke about i joke all the time about how literally no one bought it but um there were dozens of us well, th- that's the thing. The thing that has genuinely given me so much just like I blush all the time thinking about it. The people who've read this book who it, have really connected with it have been so outspoken and so sweet. And I have received so many messages that were just that are all just like lovely and just full of. I mean, it's, they're full of love. And I just I get so happy thinking about all of you guys. I'm that's so glad great. you guys liked it. Yay. I had so much writing it you know i'm very proud of what we did and i'm so glad that there's you know there's a group of people out there who fucking love it it's great (laughs) (laughs) no i mean like legitimately and this is like this may come off as fanboy but i think we've had a good enough rapport over the last year or so (laughs) that i can say this in a good critical manner but 
it did something different than with the line that I don't think books have been as successful with doing in the recent past. I mean, it took nobody characters. Like, look, your yeah. your your A list characters were Jubilee and Quentin Quire, if we want to call yeah. them A list, which that's a stretch in general. Yeah, no, no, that's a thousand percent accurate. Uh, it's funny because I just had a conversation with my former editor, Daniel Ketchum, who was the one who basically made this book happen. And when we were casting it, like once I pitched it to him and said, I want to use a bunch of quote unquote, quote, garbage pail kids. <laughs> um, he was like, girl, you can't give me a book that is full of just D-listers. And I was like, well, Jubilee's going to be in. And he was like, I need at least, I need at least one more. And I was like, what about Quentin Quire? And he was like, Okay, that'll work. Yeah. <laughs> um, we were very mindful of the fact that we were picking characters that not particularly big sellers, but it was a book that we both knew was a big risk and we were willing to take it. And so like I, you know, I thank him for that all the time. Like he was very strategic with the way he did Resurrection and Generation X was definitely Generation X and um to a certain extent Iceman were books that Marvel were willing to take a risk on. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So I'm grateful all the time that, you know, I had the opportunity to write that book. No, that's awesome. Now, one question I guess I've had is, you know, you said you picked up the Garbage Pail Kids. And <laughs> look, frankly, before, what, issue five of your run, I don't think anyone had a particular affection for, say, iBoy or yeah. anything like that. But, like, what, what went into picking your cast that were – like as a guy who likes obscure X-Men, these were some pretty obscure X-Men. See, this is part of the reason you and I connected way early on, Zach. I genuinely like, look, I was like a weirdo in high school. And part of my love for X-Men has everything to do with like, they're fucking cool now. And you've got all these movies and shit. But like when I was a nerd, mutants were weirdos Mm -hmm. so i really wanted to take back that feeling that i had when i was in high school and i wanted to find a bunch of little band of weirdos and show people why why they were special and so i have like just a deep affection for strange characters so i just like sought out the ones that spoke the most to me and felt like they needed a little more attention and to be fair like not everybody loves iboy he's been in actually a lot of books yeah i like (laughs) iboy I mean, I'm not, yeah, I'm not the only one who has an affection for that little weirdo, but, um, my whole thought process was very much just like, I wanted to find what I would consider the quote unquote losers of the X-Men because I just wanted to tell stories about misfits in a world where they should fit in because for me, that's what the X-Men is. Oh, I love to hear you say that. Um, can I, I want to build on that a little bit. I think that while that is you know, probably the uh, mission statement of the book. There's also Mm -hmm. kind of like a stealth thing going on that um, I don't think really people may have understood until we get a couple issues in that this is also a legitimate reunion book for the original Generation X cast um, that sort of slowly sneaked up on us. Um, The one thing I wanted to ask was that a lot of the generation the first generation x characters they get substantial arcs that 
I don't want to say that brings them back to status quo because they have like legitimate character arcs in your run that bring them to new places that are really welcome. Um, I'm thinking, you know, Husk, for instance, is is yeah. portrayed extremely differently than she is in Wolverine and the X-Men. Jubilee, you know, has the full arc from, from Vampire back to uh, being powered. Uh, Monet mm-hmm. is kind of changed from her uh, stuff that happened with Cullen Bunn. Was that a a conscious decision as you were going through to say, we're going to take these characters and maybe some decisions that other creators have done with them that eh, not everybody is super psyched about and, and make them a little more lovable again. Was, was that purposeful? Some of it, well, some of it was yes. And some of it's no, the thing with Monet, like Monet's the one that I wish I could have had more of an opportunity to write that in the book getting cut short is the character I lost most of my opportunities yeah. with, unfortunately. And to be Monet, clear for people who don't know the meta backstory yeah, the of this book, it was originally yeah. supposed to be 16 ish issues. And due to outside factors, it got brought down to the 12 that we now get to cherish for the rest of our lives. Correct. Yeah. And in all honesty, I think getting cut down to 12 is, is not actually as bad as it might seem because I think that some of the last minute changes we had to make made the ending stronger. Mm-hmm. But um, with Monet, I knew from the very beginning my goal with her was going to be to undo what Colin did, mm-hmm. partially because when we set out to do Gen X, I wanted to bring some of the OG members back, but I didn't want to make it about them. I wanted to make it very clear this book is not about them. Mm-hmm. It's about these new kids. Um, so when my uh, original editor, Daniel, and I were talking, I think at the time he knew Colin was about to do that to Monet. So his whole thing was like, do you want to use Monet as a villain? And initially I was like, what? she's going to be a villain. What's <laughs> happening right now? But then when he explained it to me, I was like, oh, so what we're basically doing is un- undoing what Colin yeah. did. <laughs> <Let's do> that. <laughs> Which to be fair, that had a, that had a shelf life that I, I haven't yeah. talked to Colin about that, but I can imagine that that was something that was like, and here is a direction you can take the character for a little bit before bringing her back, which. Totally. In fact, happened. like the fact that she was in that position was very much a reason that we knew we had to bring her into generation X. Cause it was like, it's not just Monet. It's also M plate. Right. Mm-hmm. So really you're getting two characters and the situation that she was in, it was like, well, of course we're going to have the fucking OG members come back together and want to, you know, get her out of there. That just makes Daniel called it quote unquote, low hanging fruit. And I was like, (laughs) you can call it that or you can call it the story everyone wants. Cause I mean, nobody wants to see Monet stay like that. Mm -hmm. So like it's, it's weird because, from the very beginning, I was like, I knew I was not going to use the OG members. So it was never like I set out to tell these cool arcs that ended up happening. It was more along the lines of, I knew I wanted to revisit those characters. And when I looked at the kids, I was like, I immediately saw which kid kind of represented which OG member mm-hmm. in their current state. Like like Husk and um, – like both Chamber and Husk being um, – attached to Roxy in the way that they are just made sense to me. Like it was just there and I just ran with it and it worked out really well. Um, and so like some of it just came together naturally. Did I say 
Did I just say Roxy Jubilee and Husk? I meant Roxy Chamber and Husk. I think you said yeah, Chamber. You did that. You, you said Chamber. That's exactly what you okay. said. Yeah. You were correct the first time. <laughs> okay, good. I was like, wait a minute, brain. No, you, did I say the words correctly? You got it. Um, yeah, no. Some of it just like organically came together. I knew I wanted to bring those characters in. I asked myself realistically where they were. Because here's another thing. Like, Daniel was like, well, do you want to do, you know, we knew from the outset we were doing a teen book. And he was like, Chamber and Jubilee are kind of like teens. And I was like, in what fucking mental world do we really look at Jubilee and Chamber or Husk or anybody as still a teen? (laughs) I can't. I can't reconcile that thought. I'm sorry. So it was just like, it was more along the lines of like, if I'm going to look at this, I'm going to look at this as Generation X, the next gen. Mm -hmm. And that's kind of what I ran with. It's great. No, that's, yeah, that's interesting. (laughs) One of the things that you did that's, look, as good as this book is, what it's going to go down in the canon people's mind is, is, oh, that's how Jubilee got her powers back, which right, wrong, or different. Yeah, what was funny was I rem- I remember when we first were announced and a bunch of people were angry. I was just like, they can be angry. They're going to be happy with the ending, man. <laughs> <laughs> well, that's, that's kind of my question on this because Jubilee had, I'd like to think, two pretty huge status quo changing things over the last, what was it, eight years or so, uh, getting vampired. Thank you, yeah. Twilight, for being very popular in 2008 to 2010. And... Uh, I'm, I'm sorry, that's a bad joke. Uh, but And then also she got Shogo. She got – she adopted a baby. So yeah. I guess my, my question is you know, as you're going through deciding how do you reset some character dynamics but keep some of the growth, how did you make the decision to say, OK, Jubilee, she's going to have her firework powers back. She's not going to be a, a child of the night, but she is still going to have this bundle of joy. Uh, for one, there was a question at one point where one editor was like, do you really want to keep Shogo? And I was like, dude, I'm adopting a child. You don't throw babies out. I'm fucking doing that. I was like, are you kidding me? They were like, Shogo sticking around. I was like, look, there have been some really good stories with Julie and Shogo. Mm -hmm. And for me, like of all the changes that have happened to her, that one in particular to me crystallized her growing up. Yeah. And... I just didn't see – there was no world where I was going to not incorporate Shogo into the story. I don't care whether or not people like him or not. I just thought that would have been like a terrible step back in her character to have her like let him go. Unless you come up with a story that is very much about like she has no choice. Sure. I didn't see that story. I wasn't going to tell that story. Now, as for giving her her sparkles back, um, I just thought it was time mm-hmm. – She's been, listen, and I've said this in a few different interviews. Like, I don't, I'm not a fan of the Vampire Jubilee, personally. But that being said, I am also a writer that respects continuity as much as I can, as much as I'm humanly able to. And on top of that, I don't want to shit on other writers' stories. And I don't think it's kosher cool or fair to do so my approach to it was like she's been a vampire for a really long time there have been some good stories that have come out of it 
I do think that as I am telling a story about these teens, like loving who they are, sure, I could tell the story of Jubilee accepting herself as a vampire, or I can tell the story of Jubilee going, you know, like, I realize now that I am like, you know, I wasn't comfortable in my skin when I was a teen, but I am comfortable as a mutant. And I fucking want, you know, I wish that I had been that person before. And then I'll give her that back. So that's what I ran with. So at what point in that decision making did it come down to, oh, no, Jason Aaron has used Quentin Quire and given him a piece of the Phoenix Force. And now I've got to use that. Oh, Oh, Jesus. So (laughs) (laughs) when you are writing for Marvel, I don't think people understand how it works. When you are writing for Marvel, there are multiple writers writing at once. Hmm. And not all of the time is there time for various offices to communicate what is happening within the offices. I, for one, did not expect a Thor story to have such a deep impact on mine. Um, So, like, I had already started writing Generation X, and I think I could be wrong, but I feel like issue one or two was – issue maybe one Mm -hmm. had come out. And everybody was like, yeah, but what about that Thor story with the Phoenix shard? And I was (laughs) like (laughs) – I was like, that was not incorporated in my plans, friends. What the fuck? So I had to like ask myself, am I going to address this as if, you know, I just wasn't, you know, like, do I just say, oh yeah, he's had it this whole time. Whoops, guys. Or do I just not address it? So I opted to just not address it. And then when we realized we were getting cut short and I realized I was going to, because I initially thought we were going to fix Monet and then I could have Monet after that or at Jubilee after that battle with Monet go like, I, I can't be a vampire. I need to be a mutant. And then she sets out to like do that. I realized I wasn't going to have that luxury and I had to figure out a way to have it happen during the fucking battle. So at that point I had to ask myself what tools I had in my toolbox. And um, luckily my uh, editor, Darren was like, well, Quentin's got that Phoenix shard. And I was like, Oh Yeah. <laughs> Thanks, Jason Aaron. <laughs> Thank you for setting that up. Well, it really <laughs> does. Yeah, it really does work, especially as I, I'm a huge fan of those yeah. moments, you know, back in, you know, 80s uh comic books especially where you get those little asterisk moments from the editors down there and it was such a great moment where it just gets put in there it's like yeah by the way in between this issue and the last or in between these panels even like that other story that you really liked from a year ago happened and it explains what's about to happen next i mean it's it's a great uh example of serendipity yeah no it totally worked out and the other thing is like i found out i actually found out we were going to get cut short months before it was announced that we were canceled so i actually luckily had the time to kind of figure out what we wanted to do like the serendipity thing didn't hit me instantly it was actually kind of a slow burn we spent several months trying to figure out how to have it happen because my biggest worry like my biggest anger in getting cut short was when i found out i was going to have to make jubilee a mutant again in this mm-hmm. battle my first thought was like i can't have this be some random ass like you know deus ex machina thing i just refuse to be <laughs> i refuse to be that writer um so i spent months friggin' months looking for an emotional solution and 
the Phoenix shard being inside Quentin, actually the real seller for me had everything to do with what I knew Phoenix or what I knew Quentin's emotional mm-hmm. storyline was going to be. And it connected, like it clicked it into place because I saw the reason Quentin wanted mm-hmm. it to happen. So like, it was great that I had that available to me and I'm really grateful that Jason Aaron wrote that story and I'm like, sorry, I got rid of it, Jason. <laughs> but um, at the same time, like if that hadn't fit, I probably wouldn't have addressed it, have addressed it and just like kept going with okay. whatever we had and another way to do it. But like, luckily it was there and I was able to utilize I'm it. I'm glad in a way it overlaps, you know? Yeah. Yeah. It, like, that's the whole thing. You want to write a story that feels satisfying. You don't want things to just happen. It feels like it Mm -hmm. has to happen. So like that was probably the most difficult part of all of it. Like the shard being there presented us with a great plot solution, but like Quentin as a character was the real reason that it worked. Yeah, totally. Because that was that whole issue before. One of the things that I know you've talked about uh, other places, but Quentin being you know, his entire bizarre character arc is that he was a good boy. Yeah. Parents just kind of dropped on him that he was adopted in not the best way. He went, he, he didn't process that well and went a little homicidal, <laughs> got better after he was a gas cloud. He went literally homicidal. Yeah, look. I we've talked on this very podcast before. I love Ryan and Xavier's. Yeah. It's a very good story. It takes a little bit of wiggling to make that work with the Quentin Choir that we get later. I did. Yeah. I think I had to remind you yeah. that he had actually killed people when we did that episode, yeah, he, and I was like, "Yeah, he, like, they definitely some murdered some people." <laughs> he clearly murdered some people, and I don't think anybody at the time that he existed expected him to become the character yeah. he is right now. Like, I think. The idea was that he was this cautionary yeah, tale, sure. and you know, he was re- revitalized in a way. Like it's it's a weird thing um, to kind of like look at some of these characters past because Quentin, Quentin in particular. I just remember rereading that arc and being like, "Oh fuck, he's awful." <laughs> 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 Jesus! <laughs> oh, I forgot he, he did, did all that stuff. He did threaten the UN <laughs> with like world destruction that one time yeah yeah he's done some genuinely terrible things he was in prison he's a bad boy yeah oh no that's good that's good uh but one one of the things that i know uh you've been bringing up a lot is your editor's influence on this book which i think from a fan perspective is something that's a little underrated i know if you look at yeah. some of my favorite marvel books over the last few years some of the more oddball out there ones that I'm enjoying come from the same editorial office, the same, same like guys saying, Oh no, we're going to green light this. So I think editors are an underrated, important thing on this. And one of the things that happened during generation X is Daniel Ketchum, who was your editor. And as you've mentioned before, the inspiration for Nathaniel Carver uh, moved on to different things and brought in Darren Shaw to take over the rest of the book. Uh, so I was just curious how that impacted your writing on the book. Do you think that it just – you moved in step with it or was there anything that kind of shifted from your perspective? 
Oh, it had a massive impact. Um, I don't know that it had as big an impact impact on the other books as it did me. Um, for me, there was like a real loss there because Daniel and I are really good friends. Like I based Nathaniel on him because he and I are so close. Mm-hmm. Uh, I mean, we've known each other for over 10 years. So... It, it was a really difficult loss for me because it was very much generation X was our baby. And so it was really hard because I went from being somebody who wrote these really, really in-depth outlines that Daniel looked at and gave a lot of feedback on to suddenly um, Darren inherited all of Daniel's books. And it was difficult for him on multiple levels because he was coming into a new office He had a ton of books. And I mean, if we're being completely real in terms of sales and visibility, Generation X was kind of on the bottom of that list. And that's Mm -hmm. not Darren's fault by any means. But it was a difficult thing going from working with an editor who like this was our creative baby together to an editor who was, you know, now juggling a series of books that he had to catch up on and make sure were put back on track because of this massive disruption. So yeah, it was really difficult um, for all people involved. I did, poor Darren, I definitely got cranky with him a few times where I was just <laughs> like, where's my Daniel? <coughs> Why don't you work like Daniel? Um, <laughs> but in the end, uh, it was weird because I went from having somebody that I was closely working with to Daniel was let go during issue four. And then on top of that, there was some other stuff going on during issue four that was really difficult where um, there were some health issues that a milk car had. So there was just a bunch of shit that was happening. So basically between, you know, from five on my work habit for the book changed drastically, which um, was very weird because I was also working a full-time job on a television show. So it was a lot. It was a lot to juggle. Oh, and uh, you know, a few months later, I my adopted son showed up. So, <laughs> wow, congratulations! <laughs> Thank you. That's exciting. So, year. so the baby um, didn't make things easier. No, no. It you know, it's not like he's ready to work for me yet. <laughs> but, um, I mean, eventually, Darren and I did end up finding a good work pattern. But I do think that because. Daniel and I were so close. It was like a difficult thing to suddenly inherit. Mm-hmm. Um, so yeah, it was weird. Five, I would say issues five through eight were probably heavily just, I was doing the best I could on my own. Um, Darren had a few notes, but again, like he was also trying to figure out the, like the book, the, you know, I had a lot going on with work. I wasn't, as easily accessible as some other writers. Um, but yeah, it was, it was, a, it was a, war, a weird transition for sure. Okay. But I would say like the last three issues, like that legacy arc, Darren, um, I counted on him to give me feedback a lot. And I probably pushed him harder to be like, Hey, 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 what do you think of this? Hey, 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 what do you think of this? Hey, I don't have time to look stuff up. I need you to tell me, you know, I need you to look into this or give me ideas for this or give me your thoughts on this. So yeah, for the last three issues in particular, um, he was, it was great working with him. 
I had a question about the uh, the artwork for this series because I think that that was something that for at least some people, um, not me, was yeah. the defining point for whether they were going to be on board for the book. Um, yeah. I thought from, from the very first issue that Amilcar's I'm, – I'm pronouncing his name correctly um, – is yeah, that, I think so. That's uh, how I say I'm it. Across? God, I hope that's okay. right. Um, you know, I thought that it was a bold choice to choose someone with a very distinct style to tell what I felt was a pretty distinct take um, on on this, the, the, the X-Men, you know, considering what else is being published. Did you have any say um, in that partnership and uh, with having him on the book? Yes. Yeah, I did. Actually, there was another artist that we had tried to get for the book that didn't work out mm-hmm. who I don't want to name no, that's um, okay. because I, I don't want to make anybody feel weird yeah. um, but we couldn't uh, like it just it didn't work out um, and then when we discussed who else we could talk about uh, Milcar's name came up and I had seen his stuff and I was like yeah because my note to Daniel from the very get-go when we first started talking about artists was that it was super important to me that we find some of that was quirky yeah. because I did not want the house style for this book mm-hmm. because I think that like with the original generation X, Chris was not your typical artist. No. And then on top of that, I'm writing weird stories about weird outsiders. I very much wanted to find somebody who had a very different, interesting, unexpected style to cast for the book. So Emil Carr's name was something that it was someone that Daniel floated to me because he had worked with him in the past and liked him as a person. And sure enough, like Emil Carr is an amazing human being. Like I have had the opportunity to work with a crop load of pencilers as a colorist. And there are very few pencilers that I can think of that work as hard as Emil Carr. Like that guy put a thousand percent of his heart into the book and I just was so charmed by him. He's such a lovely human being. Oh, that's great. Yeah. I love that you speak so highly because I think that that, I mean, and it's interesting that you're highlighting that, that maybe he had some issues as the series went, went by, but um, not that the, the fill-in artists aren't, aren't all very talented as well, but it was great to have yeah. somebody do a, a different take um, than what yeah. we're seeing in the other books. The other thing that kind of like shatters my heart as look, I've been an artist on multiple books and there's something that I can tell everybody. And I think other comic book artists would completely agree with this. It takes time to kind of find your stride Mm -hmm. and find your working, like to make everybody click. And like issue eight, I very much felt like Amilcar, Felipe and I completely clicked in a way that was like this book has found its um, visual legs. And that's why you'll see a lot of creative teams, you know, continue on together because when you get a team that clicks, it's great. But when you put a new team together, it always takes a few issues for things to come into like to land correctly. And like one of the things that always broke my heart about Generation X was like I already knew we I knew we were canceled that like before we clicked. Mm. Yeah. And that was depressing. Yeah. 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 I'm sorry about that. <laughs> in the end it's okay but you know there it was just like i just remember getting those pages for issue eight the colored pages and i just remember being like fuck my life (laughs) like i've had this feeling before on multiple books like i can distinctly remember the moment that i knew that craig adrian and i clicked on runaways Mm -hmm. and i was like oh i felt it again on this book Mm -hmm. and we're done already one of the things that you you recently did an interview with um 
uh, friends of ours on the Young Ones podcast. Yeah, um, which great interview by the way. Um, you guys you. Just, like had so much fun doing that. Um, and you mentioned this earlier uh, in in our conversation about um, using Dan as the inspiration for Nathaniel Carver. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, I was wondering if you could just maybe talk a little bit about introducing Nathaniel into this book because he is he is the original character here he's kind of the pov character in in some respects um but what did it mean to have that character be part of this storyline because he really is the heart of i feel like a lot of what's going on it meant so much to me on a very personal level you know daniel is an out gay man and in my time at marvel i've worked with several out gay editors Mm -hmm. and they like they took care of me when I was younger in particular. So like being able to create a character that is, that was based on an editor that I had like such fond feelings for meant a lot because I was like, these are people, you know, he is somebody who has contributed to the X office for 11 years. And now I get to immortalize him. Like I, I remember being like, well, they might've fired you, Daniel, but you're there forever. (laughs) You know, it meant a lot to me to be able to like tell stories with him in a way that he wasn't normal, you know, he wasn't used to Mm -hmm. seeing. Um, And that was like a lot. Uh, So yeah, it was, it was really cool being able to do that. And on top of that, like we got the whole idea because there was like somebody else who had based a character on themselves. And both of us were like, (laughs) Oh man, (laughs) that's a fucking good idea. (laughs) Yeah, I'm really, really curious to see if other X writers take on the character. Um, You know, I think there's been a history in the X office of, you know, we get these teams of maybe, especially the younger mutants or like the new outcasts, whoever they may be, and they sort of replace the last team. And we never hear from that other team. Um, You know, that's happened to members of the New Mutants. It's happened to members of New X-Men. It's happened to everybody. I mean, that's how I got Gen X cast characters. You're you're picking up Wolverine and the X-Men characters and and Uncanny uh, Bendis characters that, you know, maybe nobody else wants to play with in their sandbox. So I'm I'm really curious to see what that character's future might look like because it's a great character. Yeah, I I do genuinely love him. Like, I was very thrilled when I, like, now that it's out, that fight with Monet, like, I had this shower moment where I was like, oh, I can make Nathaniel the the MVP of this fight. (laughs) I didn't even, like, it hit me in the shower and I was like, it's like I was trying to do this. (laughs) And it just, it felt right. And it felt great to be able to do that. And then I was like, hey, we can, I can highlight, he's really useful in a way that like not everybody might recognize right away. I would not be surprised if he doesn't show up Mm. ever again. Um, I know it's, it's sad, but I don't know. We'll see what happens. It's, you never know. It's entirely possible that he'll show up on, a television show because his powers are cheap. This is you a never good know. point. I could see him on The Gifted. I could straight up see That's him what on I'm that. saying. Like, I, I mean, dude, what's hilarious is I, like, because we watched the Gen X television yes. show, I remember thinking as I was writing Nathaniel, I was like, oh, he would totally be a character that they would just put in because his power set is so fucking cheap yes. to do. 
there's no reason not to use him. Like, oh my god, how great would that be though if that got incorporated? Um, it would be but crazy. but it does. I think what you're talking about does highlight a really interesting thing about the way in which other teams have kind of been developed by the office uh, editorially. And I, the one thing that I really thought that this this series proved was that there are different forms of X Men nostalgia to dip yeah. into. You know, like, you know, we don't always have to just be doing uh, let's kick back to X-Men animated series or let's kick back to classic Claremont. Like there are significant contributions along the way that there's ways to um, not only refer to them, but like you did, I think, expand them greatly and and make them Mm -hmm. something new. Yeah. And I like. Like Trevor, I really wish I could have gone more into that secondary mutation that I gave him, but he is like a terrifyingly powerful mutant now. If you actually sit down and think about what he's capable of doing, yeah, he may be awkward as hell and bad at life, but like he's genuinely got some really useful powers now. So, you know, I wouldn't be surprised if I see him show back up and genuinely like out of all of them i think nathaniel's got the least chance of being mm-hmm. in things but i think that like the book did we did a decent job of highlighting how much more useful some of these characters are than you might have mm-hmm. thought initially oh yeah yeah um and it's funny you say that about iboy because there's that great episode uh, issue of wolverine and the x-men where they do the the time jump uh to the future yeah. and iboy yeah. is like you know this basically the security system for the world. Yes. Um, like you can see that any no name X-Men character could essentially become something very a list. If you gave it yes. the right, you know, nurturing, if you, if you sat on the egg long enough um, and it's glad to see that, you know, these characters got a little bit of that, that love. If iBoy comes back, he better have that freaking mishmash costume that he had when they went into the sewer. That was just <laughs> whatever <laughs> leftover X-Men costumes. Oh, I love that. <laughs> it's a great touch. I actually kind of want him to have a costume that shows way more skin. So he uses more yes, of his eyeball. Yeah, I don't Ooh. know who wouldn't want that. Ooh. When, when Marvel finally gets the balls <laughs> to do another swimsuit special, just give me a, give me a spread of eye right? Girl. Oh my God. If we had a, if we had one page for the Gen X kids being sexy, it would be some pasty kids in very <laughs> awkward positions. The opposite of sexy. It would be amazing. Quentin would have his weird abs where it's like, where'd yep. that come from? Yep. Would be everybody's covering up, you know, trying to hide behind things. That'd be great. <laughs> I've always like got sunglasses on all of his eyes. Oh my god, that'd be great. Now speaking speaking of sexy, your book had a lot of you know, romance and all this intrigue on that side, but one in particular stood out to me. That is, of course, the romance between Glob Herman and. Uh, <laughs> and Sprite, which happened exclusively in the background of panels. What was up with that? You know, What's up with that, Christina? Oh, my God. <laughs> They're my favorites. Oh, no. I like, I just... So when I started writing the book, I was hell-bent on populating it with, uh, you know, students. And I was like, I really want to sit down and <laughs> have weird little run-ins with random students where you would see segments of their lives. Because... Just because they're not in our story doesn't mean they have they don't have their own stories going on. Mm-hmm. So 
I love Glob Herman. I like hot for a brief second considered putting him in Don't make Gen me X. Imagine that beautiful reality. <laughs> I mean, Zach has the hots for Glob. We talked did, about it last episode. We did episode. accidentally talk about that last episode. <laughs> I, I do enjoy Glob. Glob is like he's incredible. He's always streaking. He's amazing. I mean, like. The guy is, he's just such a weird character and he says such stupid things. I love him so much. So I just like, and not only that, listen, he's also fun to draw. So another thing that I liked to consider on a regular basis, like when, if I in the script wrote who was in it in the background, I tried to pick visually huh. interesting characters because mm. I didn't want my pets to hate life. So God was a really fun one because he's a fun character to draw. So as I like incorporated these, you know, these background characters, a few of them, I was just like, who would glob? Like, I want to say a romance in the background. Who would I do? <laughs> well, I love glob. And one thing that I missed out on that I didn't, I didn't just, I just didn't have the time for it is I wanted to show the entire arc of glob and, and Sprite's relationship. My plan was to have them break up in the background oh and have God. her with <laughs> and slap him so, <laughs> so that he just jiggled everywhere <laughs> this is great and i just never wanted to explain why they got together why they broke up i just wanted to have it all play out in the background oh my god um i i just i i want to just um compliment you on that because i think one of the things that generation x did as a book was it really made the the central park campus seem real to me um and you know this is just something that and this is not an insult to the other writers i just feel like the when you get caught up in the superheroing um you don't always get a chance to do what i think a lot of x-men fans really like to do which is what's going on in their lives? You know, what's going on in the background? And we would see Kitty kind of pop in and out of this book occasionally. And I just liked that it was part of, it, there was some really good world building going on here. And this is a great example of that, just that care of, well, you know, not everybody would care necessarily about what would be happening in the background of your main characters. But I, I like that little Easter egg there. Oh, I care deeply. Like anytime <laughs> that I had people show up, I wanted to try to make sure I mentally had an idea of what was going on in their lives. Mm -hmm. Like it just makes sense to me. Otherwise they're just there, you know, yakking. They might as well be those Canadian characters in South Park where their heads move, you know, <laughs> <laughs> they're just yapping. <laughs> if they're going to be wallpaper, they should at least be interesting, well-developed wallpaper. Exactly. Yeah. Exactly. Also, like one of my pitches for Generation X that like never got through, and I I knew the second I said it, I knew before I even said it, it was never going to happen. But I at one point was like, "What if we write this book before and after fights so that we never uh -huh. see fights?" Look, look, look. <laughs> and then Daniel was like, "Everybody who buys superhero comics." He's not wrong, but I can tell you from experience and from the weird-ass Twitter following that has just evolved around my stuff and some of the things, uh, there are there is a small segment of the population who is very interested in soap opera X-Men and the fight side. They're like, ah, I'll, I'll take it or I'll leave it. Like, it's there yeah. to enjoy a yeah. good punch-out, but I 
<laughs> really care deeply about this relationship between a jello man and a rock flying fairy girl. This is why you and I click. Yeah, yeah, see, that tracks. That makes a lot of sense to me. But no, now speaking speaking of pitches and pitches that seem, let's say, far fetched. You recently had a pitch for uh, a character that some people some people struggle to relate with, I think is a fair way to describe Nate Ray, the X-Man. <laughs> what possessed you to pitch this particular thing? Not necessarily the details of it, but literally any book involving Nathan Gray, the genetic mutation clone body okay. of the Age of Apocalypse just garbage. So being 1,000% honest, the pitch was always a joke. Like, I just <laughs> get that, right? My editor. Like, everyone, everyone I, understands that? I literally pitched that and joked because, okay, here's me being 1,000% cards on the table. My editors at Marvel already know that the comics that I plan on doing are not necessarily at Marvel. Like, I am taking this year to kind of – there are two comic pitches that I have – for potentially other companies um, that don't involve Marvel because I just straight up was like telling them, I was like, I need to do some of my own IP for a little bit. Um, Mm -hmm. And so I sent him that joke because he had asked me a few weeks earlier if I had wanted to pitch on something else and we had had, you know, a conversation. And I was like, here's my pitch for you, Chris. (laughs) (laughs) Let's give the people what they want. (laughs) <laughs> X, you know, X man, but gay, and so like the exchange was. I thought the exchange was funny, so I sent him a screen cap of the exchange, and I was like, "Can I post this on Twitter?" Because clearly, it's just you know, it's a joke. But then it became not a joke. <laughs> <laughs> so then I posted it on Twitter, and suddenly Chris Anka was like, "I'd fucking draw that," and I was like, "Chris." <laughs> <laughs> And then, like, you guys started sending letters, and then my editor started writing me and being like, Christina, why are we getting letters? <laughs> <laughs> and I was like, because it's turned real, man. It's turned real. Yeah. It's a, this is happening. I mean, look, I'm assuming it's not happening. It's, it's not. It's not happening. Because Marvel was like, what? No. <laughs> it would not sell. Like, like, let's put, let's be very honest. That has a specific I mean, target audience and it's smaller than Generation X's. Exactly. That was, that was their thing. They were like, girl, Gen X didn't sell well. This is going to sell zero. <laughs> <laughs> I would adore every like, issue, but it would not oh, make honestly, money. But here's the thing. If they had told me to do it, I would have fucking done it. Like, in a hundred. Yeah. Because the other thing is, like, I don't know if you guys saw that uh, pitch that I had made involving Guardians of the Galaxy. I've, I've heard tale of this. Yes. No. The, you can explain it. It's it, it was yours. Yeah. Well, it was like a combo platter because it, it wasn't um, – it wasn't just me. So, so Jordan – contacted me while I was at grad school because he knew I loved magical girls. And he said to me, I do you have any interest in doing like a magical girl um Marvel book? And I was like, you're fucking right I do. <laughs> 
So what we did is we sat down and we talked for a little while about who we could do it with. And this was when what was a battle world was happening. So it was like going to be a mini series that was kind of like, you know, crazy. We could do whatever the hell we wanted and make it like really weird and random. So the pitch that we landed on because for a hot second we were talking about Avengers and then they were unavailable. And then um, he was like, well, I think we could do something with guardians. And I was like, I got it. I got it. We're going to do star lady. It's going to be their magical animal. And I like, we just immediately came up with this amazing high school magical girl pitch and it made it through editorial did not make it through marketing. Oh. Because I only pitch stories that literally no one will buy. <laughs> That's oh. like my history with Marvel is that I pitch bonkers things because I really like telling weird stories. Well, I, so, I think it's an interesting. We appreciate. I think it's bonkers. an interesting dynamic that's happening in comics as a whole right now. I mean, DC. What was it? A year, two years ago, did Rebirth, which was. Yeah a back to basics approach the uh x-men resurrection line in general i mean exceptions like gen x and Iceman, but it was it was very much a let's bring it back to what the people want out of x-men and marvel as a whole is pitching their new you know their new lineup as fresh start fresh start there's a lot of weird balance of you know we want to try some experimental things but in a very real way we need to keep our core, you know, pretty solid. And some great stuff comes out of that. I mean, I know Adam. One of the books that you keep talking about is Moon Girl and Devil Dinosaur, which was a stupid yeah. experimental yeah. book. It continues <laughs> to be, but is it's outstanding. It, but it's so far out from yeah. the standard Marvel core. I mean, the only Marvel character in that title is a Jack Kirby character that Jack Kirby could only sell twelve issues of. And if Jack Kirby or sixteen, I'm sorry. But if Jack Kirby can't sell 40 issues of a thing, then why are you even bothering? But that's the whole thing. I come from the two books that I would argue I'm most well known for at Marvel are Runaways and Spider-Man Loves Mary Jane. Mm -hmm. Those are by no means typical Marvel books. And that's the thing that I think I, you know, that's, that's what I miss the most. Like I miss Marvel taking the risks that they took with books like that, uh, which is why I love books like Moon Girl and Devil Dinosaur. Dinosaur, although bullshit, Gert and Old Lace would kick We've their ass. Oh, I was going to ask you that. You got so mad over there. There is a pixel fight, but <laughs> hold on, hold on, because here's the, here's the thing: Old Lace is a Velociraptor type. Devil Dinosaur is a Tyrannosaurus Rex, the king of dinosaurs. Yeah, but old lace is frisky and can get on top of that slow ass T Rex. I don't care. And, <laughs> and Devil Gert, Dinosaur is not particularly no is, smart. No, but so, Luna is you know. literally the smartest person on earth at nine. So. The smartest. Yes. Yeah, but That's you true. know what? What could take the smartest girl down? Lace. Oh, no. good point. This is this is true. Uh, <sighs> Just saying. The world. The world may never um, know. Oh, I'm not buying it! I'm not buying it! <laughs> no, but to to go back to what we were just talking about, I do think it's interesting how how much of what a publisher is willing to take a risk on 
especially you know with with marvel has to do with the whole dynamic of the direct market um monthly floppies versus whether you're willing to let a series go to trade and find its audience there um you know i feel like the success of quirky weird books like moon girl or squirrel girl which i'm a huge fan of um i'm able to read them with my daughter which i think is really great and um i think families are able to you know enjoy these books we don't always really it's it's and i feel from a sales perspective i understand why but it's difficult because i would love for generation x to have like a quote unquote season 2 um and it doesn't necessarily have that opportunity because after what four issues we've got to make a decision as to whether something is going to get the the plug yeah or not. yeah i mean that's um, the unfortunate truth about the world that we live in currently um everybody's got their own hot take on what the problem is what the solution from my personal experience, having been on books that were canceled and then uncanceled because the trades saved them, you know, trades can make a huge difference. But the problem that is like Runaways and Spider-Man Loves Mary Jane existed at a time where, you know, they were selling books in different formats at Barnes and Noble and Marvel right. caught a piece of that manga wave with those books mm-hmm. at that size I don't know that they would look at a book like Generation X and try to do any additional marketing for it. I mean, the sad truth is like I went to a Barnes and Noble and I could not find any copies of my own damn book on the shelf. I don't know if anybody's Um, ordering it. I don't know if it's available outside the direct market right now. Um, And as much as I would love to think that we had a shot of coming back, the reality is I just don't know that we will because I just don't think – the opportunities that books like Runaways and Spider-Man with Mary Jane had exist. Now, I'm also not saying that I'm as good a writer as Brian K. Vaughn or Sean McKeever, but I do recognize very thoroughly that one of the number one trends of these younger audience books is that they do well in trades because younger kids buy them. So you should be aiming at getting it into their hands. Like Moon Girl and Devil Dinosaur does terrible in floppies, does really well in trades. Mm -hmm. Same, like Squirrel Girl does really well in trades. Runaways, really good in trades. Those are books that, you know, libraries love. Barnes and Noble, like, picks up and tries to get into the hands of young readers because they're teen books. And it's a thing that saves them. And I wish I had that. And I don't think I'm going to get that. Um, I I would just like to say for the record that. I have seen your uh, Generation X trades in oh. Barnes & Noble. I'd like to go on the record and say I haven't gone to a Barnes & Noble in several years, which may be part of the problem. I mean, that is definitely part oh. of the problem because that's another thing. Not as many people well, go to bookstores. Yeah. yeah, how many are there? Yeah. Right? You know, how many comic stores are there? Uh, oh, man. This is getting <laughs> a little dark. Uh, <laughs> oh, it's everything sad. I've got a fun one. Um, if if you did have a quote unquote season two, um, because, you know, it sounds like, you know, the Monet thing was meant to be resolved and then, you know, sort of further adventures. If you had another villain to play around with, with that cast, who who do you think you might have so here's used? The thing. I haven't thought um, of villains because I don't know if I've had this conversation with you guys before. Villains are the hardest thing to nail down, I find. Because yeah. they're yeah. like, I'll be like, can I use this villain? And you'll be like, no, they're in another book. Can I use this villain? in another book can i use this villain and then i'm like at a point where i'm like can you just give me a list of who's available Um, (laughs) i have thought about what i would do for a season two just because you know i can't help myself 
I would not, I wasn't thinking about villains at all, but I would immediately knock, I would keep Quentin not powered for a little bit, knock Mm -hmm. him down several pegs and have him try to, and like do an arc about restoring him. Um, Yes. That could be really fun. And I would definitely make Monet his mentor. My thought was if I had a second shot at this and I had a, like a volume 2.0, volume 2.0 would be about taking this class of losers, the, the school accepts that they're going to go ahead and let these kids decide what they're going to do. They all choose to stay. And the goal is to make them the new Gen X team. That's by yes. using OG oh. Gen X members as their teachers. So their class. Marvel, please make this happen. Please or make this happen. Not my choice. <laughs> at least one, one thing I, I do hope, like I'm, I'm probably a bit more cynical than Adam, which is, you know, a sad thing, but I do hope that some of the spirit and some of the, ingenuity and creativity of a book like generation x continues as they you know progress with the x line and start to do new and different things because the books that i've liked the most over the last few years of x-men have been the stuff that's experimental and weird and does something new with the characters and as much as i like you know seeing to pull this out of the blue kitty and colossus together and stuff that's something I have seen before and I'm part of me who's someone who has over the last few years, mainline 50 plus years of X-Men continuity. I want to see something a little different, something I can't point to and say, Oh, this is incredibly similar to this story arc from 1994. Yeah. Yeah. That's why I was so excited. Nobody had put Jubilee and Chamber together. What is with that? (laughs) What is I don't know. It was there. Nobody took it. And I was like, well, I'll do it. Shit. It, that was that was very choice because what? here's the weird thing about Chamber. They pushed him hard in the early 2000s. Like he would – Because he's he, hot. Chamber's, Chamber's got that mysterious bad boy. He's got that British telepathic accent. There's a lot to like about Chamber. And frankly, he's, he's a killer design. Like here's – Chris Batchelor yes. was very good at making weird, weird teen designs. Yeah. I mean, he wears a sad scarf oh. all the time. What's not? To- <laughs> I mean, Chris put him in what was clearly bondage, but he's just got sad boy written all over him. Every look, every X-Men character has worn what is mostly bondage gear. Like that's a. Ah, it's true. We're, we're not normally on their face. Normally on their face. <laughs> I will give you that, but like, look, Chris Claremont has put bondage gear pretty much anywhere he can. More power to him. I love him to death, but he's done I mean, that. He, he so frequently that sometimes I'm just like, interesting. Look, you know, I'm not going to yuck him as yell. What are we learning about, Chris? Wants. He's far more successful man than I will ever be, so. <laughs> well, that that's good. Uh, I, as we are wrapping this up, one thing we I did just want to ask as we because we've we've talked about some things that we've really enjoyed some stuff that's been a little sadder. Christina, what are you most proud of on Generation X? Oh God, I'm actually proud of a bunch of things. I think the thing that I'd put out, I have to put at the top of it is the Quentin Jubilee story on repowering her. Um, that was a big one for me. I, I when we landed that one i was so relieved like i can't even tell you how much stress like slid off my back um 
Another thing that I'm super proud of is the Nathaniel and Benjamin story because it's there are a lot of queer stories out there that have to do with the queer struggle. So it was really nice to be able to write about two boys who like each other and their problem is themselves. Um, and then I think writing Jubilee as a mom would be number three. Like Jubilee and Chamber as grownups really would be well, my number I, I three. Can, yeah, I can yeah, tell you that, that that has been a very refreshing and important thing to see. Like we mentioned it, uh, we had Dennis Hopeless on a few months back and he wrote that fantastic Spider-Woman series about Spider-Woman being a mom. And as I like I have a two year old and as I have started to read comics as he's been in existence, I have been drawn to comics about like moms and dads and seeing Jubilee, who's a character that's I mean, she's most frequently associated with being the kid on the X-Men from the 90s animated series. So yeah. seeing her grow up and like have to be a mom and deal with the fact that half the time she has no idea what she's doing and she's just kind of making this up and hoping that Shogo doesn't die. It was yeah, <laughs> very refreshing and hit me in a very specific spot, spot of my heart. Same because my Aww. kids too, and I don't know what the hell I'm doing. <laughs> you guys are so cute. Like I feel like I'm this old grandfather with my, uh, you know, not two year old child uh, <laughs> who's like eight and <laughs> not a newborn. Um, but I, I have to agree. I, you know, I get really irritated when editorial thinks like you said before, like, Oh, well maybe, maybe the Ascani should come and like abduct Shogo and uh, you know, he to could be fair, that worked cable out for cable. or something. Um, it sure <laughs> did. And we all love cable, but um, or, you know, like Spider-Man can't stay married. And I, I always wonder why not, you know, yeah. like, let's have some adult relationships in, in these uh, books because you know, that's okay too. <laughs> and, and, and it's, you know, it, I think it goes beyond just the adult relationship portion. I talked a little bit about this on the, the Young Ones cast. Um, one thing that I wish I had time to write is like more of both Jubilee and Chambers' relationship in Benjamin mm -hmm. Nathaniel's because like people love a buildup. And then I think instinctively dramatists love to go, well, then they've got to have a breakup. And it's like, yeah. or you could write them. <laughs> as a couple fighting together against something or yeah. you can write about how difficult it is to maintain a relationship. You know, there's a lot that you can do with couples that feels very grown up and like Jubilee and chamber would have been a really fun one to write about because like chamber is suddenly, you know, he may not be thinking out about what it means to continuously be a person in a baby's life. Like, what does that actually mean? You know, does he have a moment where he starts to like go, oh, I'm going to freak out now because I am suddenly a parent and that's not what I realized I was signing up for. Because mm -hmm. you know? yeah. that would be your chamber to be like, mm -hmm. I'm bad at everything. <laughs> you know, like this is, oh, do I have the commitment for this? Um, and then you can write about how difficult that is to overcome and have the two of them address that in a way that is, less than him walking away and leaving somebody crying on a porch hugging a teddy bear. Yeah. Um, there's a lot there that you can do. That's a lot of fun that I wish I could have done that. I don't get to now, but you know, 
whatever. Well, I, in that same vein, and I think this might be a, a good way to just kind of wrap things up. Um, mm-hmm. I'm a huge, I've become a huge Jubilee fan, um, mainly by accident because I'm doing this silly web comic, um, yeah! with her and, and, um, well, no, but, but by, by trying to think, you know, in the head of that character, but I'm, I'm approaching it from like 1993, obviously. Um, mm-hmm. so it's a, it's a very different, um, approach, but, um, for you, you've obviously spent a lot of time, um, with this character, you're transitioning her from what I think a lot of people are not a huge fan of a take of the character into something that is a little bit more where we'd like her to be. Yeah. Um, where, you know, what's your sort of like, you know, hopes for the future for that character? You know, where, where would you like to see her land um, in the next couple of years? I would really like to see her. First of all, I would like for nobody to get rid of Shogo. Cause again, and I've said this before in multiple things, I think there's a lot of opportunity there. Cause you, she's a mutant raising a human in a mutant world. Mm-hmm. And there's got to be an interesting sort of dynamic there where, you know, she's asking herself, am I subjecting this kid to feeling like an outsider in a way that I felt like when I was a kid? Yeah. Is this something that I am doing to them? I mean, I think that like we as parents already constantly worry about whether or not yeah, we're probably. screwing up our children. Mm-hmm. You know, <laughs> they're going, fine. I could like, you know, throw them out to the wolves and they'll be okay. But there's a lot there that I think that you could write for her because like, even though she feels more like an adult now, like that doesn't mean in her head, she feels like one. Right. Cause I know as a, you know, a 36 year old that I still feel like a kid. Mm-hmm. So I would just really like to see Jubilee travel down that path of like mentally trying to understand what her role as like a parent and an adult is without necessarily having this sort of, hormonal responses that she had when she was a teenager. That's, that's fantastic. That's, that's very interesting. I know that Jubilee is not just going away for people who uh, are interested to see where she shows up next. She's going to be in the hunt for Wolverine, uh, whatever mystery, mystery, Chris Batchelow comics. I mean, I know it's exciting. He's fucking lucky. I think, I think, (laughs) As one of us has written a Generation X comic, and the other two of us just have spec scripts in for whenever Marvel calls on us, we're good. We're big, big fans of Chris Bachelow. So, I mean, I'm excited to see what what that man does with some Jubilee in the future. Uh, but, but as we wrap up, Christina, where uh, where can people find you online if they so choose and were charmed by the hour or so of you talking about X-Men stuff that is now done? You can find me on Twitter, Christina Strain, and okay. that's pretty I mean, much look, it. That's, that's the standard <laughs> one. Uh, and Adam. Oh. oh, actually, can I yeah. can I ask a question real quick? Um, yeah. One of the things that I was looking for after um, you did the Young Ones podcast was um, your web comic. Is that live on online still, or is that something I would have to yeah. get and, and trade? No, it's actually still online. It's the foxsister.com. Um, it's still not done because Jade, uh, my penciler, is completing the last. She has the rest of the script, and she's. I've given her a bunch of time to do that, so it's it's still being drawn, mm-hmm. but. Um, 
yeah, the majority of it is online and it's missing like the last 18 pages or something. So you can read almost all of it online right now. Sweet. Awesome. I'm looking forward to that. Now, speaking of speaking of web-based <laughs> comics, Adam, where can people find you online? Uh, guys, you can always follow me on Twitter at Arthur Stacy and new pages of Bish and Jubes come out every Monday at adamrec.tumblr.com. Enjoy. That, that is awesome. As for myself, you can find all of my stuff at xavierfiles.com. That's where this episode is hosted. That's where I do weekly recaps of all of the latest garbage in X-Men social media, where I do write-ups of various characters every week. I believe as this goes up, we will have talked about Forge, who is a, definitely a man who has a lot of <laughs> stuff associated with him. All right. <laughs> Forge is oh my God. a challenge, to say the least. Oof. It can be tough. Uh, uh, beyond that, you can follow me on Twitter at Xavier Files. <laughs> now, if you liked this show, if you liked everything that comes with it or anything that happens in the Xavier Files social media and internet empire, you can go to patreon.com slash Xavier Files. That's where you can request different X-Men stories for us to bespoke craft an entire episode around. Which is really fun. We just got a request that won't go live until June. But I think it's our first request that's not technically a comic. Mm, that one's weird. I don't know how we're going to talk about that one. I have literally no idea and it's all I can think about now. So <laughs> get excited for this spiral bound Marvel publication that we're going to get to talk about. Um, oh, man. Yeah, and that's at the uh, $2 a month level. Uh, there's various prizes and gifts at various different levels. As this goes up, the Xavier Files zine, which was a Patreon exclusive reward, is in the final steps. As we record this, I just started doing my first layouts of getting all the articles and pictures and all the cool stuff in. Guys, it's going to be lit. Uh, I haven't figured out how that's going to be distributed yet, but it's going to be available to everyone. We are probably doing an exclusive cover just for the Patreons people. So if you want to get on top of that, you know, I mean, my bank account's open. Uh, uh, but beyond that, if you do mm -hmm. like the show and you cannot support monetarily, I get it. I don't support everything monetarily that I consume in the interwebs. If you want to go leave us a rating or review or just like a nice note on Twitter or something, that's always cool. That can help us out. Uh, but beyond that, we want to give one big final thank you to Christina Strain for Generation X and for taking the time out of her busy life to you know come talk about it with us. Thank oh. you. Thank you guys for having me. <laughs> it's been a consummate delight over the last year getting to talk about increasingly convoluted and dumb X-Men stuff with you. <laughs> <laughs> I'm sorry I couldn't get you maggot. Look, look, you had the power. You had the power. He was already alive. You said you put people in the background. You could have just said, and also Maggot's here. He was a Generation X character for one issue. It could have been a thing. He's suddenly a mentor, and you're like, what just happened? <laughs> I'm okay you'll you'll get what you want at one point, Zach. I'm look, sure look, of it. It'll, Cullen, it'll to, be, to be fair, in the last year, Cullen Bunn did put him in the background of an issue of X-Men Blue. So I've gotten my yearly dose of yeah. people remembering that Maggot exists. There you go. It's, but a, it's a beginning. It's a beginning, hopefully not an ending. Until then, <laughs> uh, this has been Battle of the Atom. We hope you survived the experience. Get it! 
Make sure you join us next week when writer Cena Grace comes to pretty much do the same thing, but about Iceman. See you then.